0: Hmm. Recorded live Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 31st, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Once again, we, were on, we are on the Chukakara, chucacabra. No, chuca. <laughs> the Chutica River in southern Mississippi. I do not know how tonight's broadcast is going to go. There are some bad storms here on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. The cable broadband is already out. We are using our Verizon phones, but those connections are weak as well, the first downpour, and it could be over. If communications are cut off, I will commence with the program and post the recording, (coughs) depending on how far into the program we are when we lose it. We might just have to reschedule the presentation. Three years ago, I wrote an article, a brief article titled, Libertarianism Cannot Be Christian. And so far as I could remember, or even find at Christagenia, I never presented it in a podcast. But talking to some friends recently, maybe I did it as part of something else, which I do not now recall. I guess that that is one danger of amassing a large number of podcasts that eventually I might repeat myself. I only pray that the repetition is not too frequent. Before I begin, I want to define libertarianism. So far, so for that, I will simply employ the default definition which appears on the Google search page for the term. Libertarianism is a political philosophy that upholds liberty as its principal objective. Liberty from what is another story. Libertarians seek to maximize autonomy and freedom of choice. Emphasizing political freedom, voluntary association, and the primacy of individual judgment. Libertarianism is basically freedom from any authoritarian judgment, including the judgment of God. I was inspired to make this presentation tonight in part. Because here in the United States, the long and arduous political season is upon us once again. In part, we are constantly confronted with so-called Christian libertarians in social media. And to me, that term is an oxymoron. And in part, because a few weeks ago, I saw this three-part series of articles on the Internet from a website which calls itself... The Libertarian Republic. And those articles are titled, Why Christians Make Great Libertarians. The articles, to me, were quite repulsive, as they reflect an absolute lack of true Christian understanding. So we are going to proceed. By presenting part of the first in that article, small portions of the others, and offering some criticism before we present our own article, Libertarianism Cannot Be Christian. The first article opens by saying that in 1932, the Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton expressed concern that many people were according to, the government with a trust and reverence that ought to be reserved only for God. Chesterton's admonition was not only prophetic, but rooted in the deepest mainspring of Christianity's past. He was echoing spoken by the prophet Samuel nearly 3,000 years ago. 1 Samuel chapter 8 tells how the Israelites having grown weary of deferring to their local judges, decided to centralize power and crown a king. The great judge, Samuel, upset by the nation's desire for an earthly ruler, prayed to God for guidance. God replied by telling Samuel that by demanding a human king, the Israelites have rejected me from being king over them. This equation of statism with idolatry is alive and well in modern Christendom. In particular, Christians in the United States have, since before Bush left office, been moving away from federal advocacy and towards political decentralization. Whenever someone suggests that Christians cannot be a viable force for liberty, I, meaning the author of the paper, No, that person has long been out of touch with America's Christian culture. The believers I speak with increasingly feel put upon by the earthly state and simply wish to be allowed to live as they see fit in their own communities. And I believe there's a, a typo there. It should be the believers I speak of increasingly feel put upon. Now, while we would assert that Americans' Christian culture is no longer Christian, there are some very good points which are made here. At Christigenia, there are several articles which also explain that in recent history, people have substituted the god of government in place of the God of Heaven. We developed our reasoning and our understanding of that separately from G.K. Chesterton. However, and otherwise, if we had ever read Chesterton's work, we would have certainly given him credit. While we have not read any of Chesterton's writing, from further citations provided... In this series of articles it is clear that he may not even though he did well in this area he may not have been the sort of christian of whom identity christians would readily approve in 2009 we wrote an article entitled who is your god and in that article we said in part over the past 100 or so years At the same time that the state has slowly become the God of the people, the state has also slowly torn down the moral barriers of the old God, the God of the Bible, and has replaced the morality of Christianity with a new morality, that of diversity, inclusion, and multiculturalism. Now. G.K. Chesterton saw part of this equation as it was actually beginning to happen in 1932. From our perspective, it should be rather easy to see. Now, there is more to that first Libertarian Republic article than what we have presented, but these paragraphs set the tone for these articles and also... For this article and also for the two related follow-up articles, which the Libertarian Republic authors, which are titled Rejecting Earthly Authority and Christians Forbidden to Correct Sinners by Force. And they are actually attempting to channel Christians into this libertarian point of view. And that's actually quite evil, as we will see. But these articles also have some good points. For instance, they use the parable of the trees of the forest found in Judges chapter 9. And we have also elucidated and commented on that parable at length here in a recent podcast. They use that parable to show that corrupt men naturally incline towards positions of power, which is certainly what the parable is telling us, but they make some points which Christians should not accept, as, for instance, where they state that Chesterton, perhaps hyperbolically, called original sin the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. It is also a part of Christian theology which most squarely defeats political authoritarianism. Now, we cannot agree with Chesterton that original sin is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. In fact, an understanding of Christian identity and covenant theology allows one to assert that every part of Christian theology can certainly be proved. But we understand that many Christians may agree, even identity Christians may agree, that political authoritarianism is evil. And we understand how it would be appealing to Christians if they could stand on scripture to face down such authoritarianism. However, the question we must put forth is whether that is truly a Christian attitude and If it is not, we must ask why it is not. We shall also strive to answer those questions this evening. For now we shall state that authoritarian government was also ordained by God. For instance, in Daniel chapters 2 and Daniel chapter 7, where it foresaw, by the ordination of God, a series of beast empires, whether those empires are for better or worse for men. The book of Nezer was told, you, O king, are this head of silver, or head of gold, I'm sorry, and you shall rule wheresoever the children of men dwell. There, Daniel is expressing the word of Yahweh, that condoned and permitted and foretold the Nazar's authoritarian control wheresoever the children of men dwell. That concept is completely missing from the Libertarian Republic and these articles on Christian libertarianism, and that is the major shortcoming of libertarianism when it attempts to put on a Christian mask. There's a total cognitive disconnect there with scripture. Commenting on the book of Acts and countenancing another incorrect view of Acts chapter 4, which is advanced by the Marxists, The second article in this series states, in part, that the whole of Acts 4 is directly libertarian. The chapter begins with Peter and John being arrested by the government. The pair is ordered not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but instead defies the authorities to their faces, saying, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? But that's where they fail. These Christian libertarians do not properly advance that which is, quote-unquote, right in God's eyes as the solution to our current political dilemmas. And then the third article in the series states the following. Libertarian Christianity did not end in Acts. For millennia, leading Christians had been vociferous critics of the state. The third century church father, John Chrysostom, fervently denounced the authorities of his day and had no desire to take their place. Christians above all men are forbidden to correct the stumblings of sinners by force, he said. It is necessary to make a man better, not by force, but by persuasion. While we are familiar with some of his writings, we have not read all of John Chrysostom. So we cannot comment on these statements in their original context, but we shall answer all of the questions raised here by commenting on the views of the libertarians, which have been posited in the paragraphs which we have just presented. Our first issue with the libertarians is this, that they do not adequately explain why the ancient children of Israel rejected Yahweh their God as their king in favor of an earthly government. Secondly, the only alternative they offer to authoritarian government is a personal freedom dictated by individual conscience. While the founders of the American Republic believed that man should be permitted to worship God as the individual conscience dictated, Those founders also expected that men would worship God. Thirdly, while for various reasons, both religious and historical, Christians were forbidden to correct sinners by force, the Christian gospel instructs Christians in how to treat sinners, and those instructions are completely ignored by the libertarians. We will confront each of these errors of the Libertarians, but first we will present the article we wrote in 2012, September of 2012, entitled, Libertarianism Cannot Be Christian. And it was based around a visit I made to the home of my brother after not seeing him for 17 years. I saw him in um, July of 2012. I saw my beloved brother and sister-in-law for the, first time, for the first time in 17 years this past July, 2012. And I received a reminder of where I had come from. Quite a vivid reminder it was, because in spite of the passing of so many years, Sadly, they are still there, meaning that my brother and my sister-in-law hadn't really changed, hadn't really matured in their worldviews in 17 years. It is not that I do not love them, for I certainly do. However, once one grows in the enhanced Understanding of life and world circumstances and develops the Weltanschauung, which many Christian nationalists have, or at least should have. A journey into the past is often a trip down a memory lane that is lined with, ha- with haunted houses, and-, and this being Halloween. That's probably an apt analogy. The, um, the fact is that visiting my brother and sister-in-law brought back a lot of memories that I really wanted to put away, and that's the way it is. All identity Christians have done things in the past which they would know better to do now, or at least I hope they would. One easily discussed example of our current differences, meaning the differences that I saw that we had in 2012 may be drawn from popular music. My brother said in protest, when I pointed out that a certain musician was a promiscuous and deviant miscreant, he But you used to listen to that. Well, the ever-present strain. from that FM radio of my childhood, were flooded with it. So everyone used to listen to it. My brother would say, you even bought one of his records. Well, of course I had. But I was all of 13 years old at the time, and my parents really didn't care what records we bought. And I can still hear and appreciate the beautiful melodies of songs like Tiny Dancer or Your Song. Pierce the stale air of the distant past. But eventually, growing up and maturing, I discovered the demons which lurked behind the poetical lyrics and the bucolic album covers, and I hated them. I made a pointed remark concerning the evils of certain deviant sexual practices. And my sister-in-law had said, but it doesn't matter what someone does in their own house as long as they don't do it in front of me. And that's pretty much the -the off-the-shelf reply. That is one of the standard responses given by many people today in reply to such criticisms of modern depravity. It is the libertarian attitude reflected even by people who imagine themselves to be rather conservative and often even somewhat religious. And they blame their acceptance of such vice upon the fashion of the modern world. But is depravity really modern? And is the idea that depravity is modern really modern? That's a couple of presumptions that are easily proven wrong. In his Germania, the first century AD Roman chronicler Tacitus, remarking on the Germans, but ostensibly testifying to conditions in Rome and his displeasure with them, said no one in Germany lacks advice, nor do they call it the fashion to corrupt and to be corrupted. And if you want to know what Tacitus was writing about, read about the same thing in Romans chapter 1. Tacitus marveled at German chastity, and in the harsh and swift punishment for such things as adultery, which he said was very rare for so numerous a population. Tacitus also explained that in Germany, traitors, cowards, and men who committed sexually deviant acts, such as that which many today call sexuality, were thrown into the mud and suffocated as a punishment. And it really makes me laugh when when um, in Europe, archaeologists find these bog bodies. And the archaeologists, the modern Judeo-influenced archaeologists, they pull a body out of the bog, which may have had a stone tied around its neck or, or suffered some other misfortune. And they'll say, oh, the ancient Germans, they sacrificed this body. This person was a human sacrifice in the bog. And that is nonsense. If you open up Tacitus' Germania to paragraph 12, you'll find that the ancient Germans threw those people in a bog and suffocated them with stones because they were faggots. They were sexual deviants or committed some other terrible crime. If a man also lie with mankind, as he lies with a woman, both of them, meaning both men, have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So it says in Leviticus chapter 20. The struggle between good and evil has been with man throughout history. Good triumph when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in the flames, good triumphed. when ancient Babylon fell, and when a morally decadent Rome was lost to the Goths, The deviant practices considered modern or fashionable today had corrupted all of those ancient societies, Deviancy is as old as Sodom and Gomorrah. It is never modern. It is never fashionable. Yet, in the most decadent societies, there were men who could distinguish between good and evil. And, although, ostensibly, Abraham was alone before the gates of Sodom in Genesis chapter 18, where no righteous men were found, Tacitus was not alone in Rome, as we can tell from Paul's epistle, written not long before Tacitus' Germania was written. And Paul described the same types of deviancy occurring in Rome. Paul of Tarsus described the moral corruption of ancient Rome in the opening chapter of his epistle to to the Roman Christians. And after having illustrated the rampant sexual deviancy and other sins, which were common there at the time, he concluded that those practicing such things are worthy of death, not only they who cause them, but also they approving of those committing them. The Germanic people, as part of their inherent nature, regularly dealt these same judgments to sinners, as we see from Tacitus's description of them. When a society ceases to condemn decadence, corruption flourishes, and history teaches us that such a society never endures for very long. Why should we believe that things could be any different today? and the 82nd psalm asks how long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked and as it says in proverbs chapter 18 it is not good to accept the persons of the wicked to overthrow the righteous in when fail to judge the wicked they themselves shall be overthrown as the natural result of the wicked being permitted to flourish. We see one example of this process today when children are being taught all sorts of deviancy in schools against the wishes of their parents. Other examples abound where sexual deviance can walk the streets openly in certain areas that children also frequent, that families also frequent, and they're rubbing their sexual deviancy into the noses of normal, God-fearing people. Other examples abound, where we are subjected to witnessing all sorts of immorality on a daily basis. Living in Sodom, the just lot tormented his own righteous soul as Peter tells us in his second epistle. With the Christian ethics that were evidently quite natural to the European peoples, out of the ashes that were Greece and Rome, there arose a society greater than all which went before it. And while other and darker forces often caused its component principalities to compete viciously with one another, even too frequently war within itself. In both the arts and the sciences, and in its dominance over the beasts of the wider world, Christian Europe far surpassed all of the cultures which preceded it. This was achieved in spite of the corruption of the church by the bankers, and the subsequent wars against Christian society waged by the Catholic tyrants. However, with the Reformation, thence followed the disease now known as liberalism, which emancipated the Jew, who was forever the enemy of Christian society, and it would eventually allow for the complete corruption of Christian society, causing it to follow in the way of all the great civilizations which went before it. The ideals of liberalism, liberty, equality, and fraternity, the false gods of humanism, are trumpeted to this day, resulting in the continual destruction of Christian society and the white race which built it. And not only are all hominids, never mind men, now considered to be of equal value in society, but so have all creeds, all superstitions, all ideas, all beliefs, and all moral values or immoral values now somehow become equal at the expense of the very builders of civilization and at the despair Of whatever righteous and true men remain. The promises of liberalism are only promises for the Jew and for whomever the Jew affords them, that he may take full advantage of Christians. On the other hand, Christians should only have expected liberty and fraternity in Christ, as Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5. And Christians should not expect equality at all except in esteeming among the members of the body of Christ, as we see in one Corinthians chapter twelve, or in luke twelve forty eight It is not a mistake that the last false prophet of the old kingdom of Judah, was named Pasher, Jeremiah chapter 20. Pasher is mentioned frequently in Jeremiah, especially in that chapter, and he was an adversary to the prophet of God. Pasher, the name Pasher, means liberty in Hebrew. And in that alone, there is an important message. As the apostle, Peter would say of those who promote personal liberty outside of Christ, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption to Peter chapter 2. Escaping the relative chaos which the advent of liberalism created in Europe, many of the refugees of what was once Christendom managed to form a handful of decidedly Christian states in America. However, a constitution which was meant to be a compact among Christian states did not escape the influences of liberalism and the infection spread, exacerbated by those who sought the concentration of power and from thence transformed the newly formed federal government from one which regulated a union between sovereign states into one that held sovereignty over those states. The U.S. Constitution did not legislate religion morality, because it was left to each of the sovereign states to legislate religion and morality for themselves. Soon that concept was corrupted, and now we are both without religion and without morals. Once it was injected into the minds of the American people, Apart from the will of the founders and the people themselves, that the federal government of the United States held sovereignty rather than the people in their respective states, the Constitution became a vehicle for liberals with which they could dis its Christian signatories. Even the word posterity, defining the limits of the union to the descendants of the signers and the European people whom they represented, became forgotten in the minds of the American public, replaced with the liberal cries of liberty, equality, and fraternity, and the false gods of humanism. Jeffersonian liberalism held the ideal that a God-fearing Christian nation could govern itself and should therefore be free of either the tyranny of the church or the tyranny of a monarch. Jewish liberalism has taken God out of the nation, and it has imposed a tyranny that either the church or the monarchs could only envy. The Constitution of the United States was never supposed to be the law of the land. It is only an agreement binding the various sovereign states, which were party to it, in a contract of cooperation in the areas of defense and trade. Therefore, the Constitution did not codify morals, or many other things, because the various sovereign states already had, and the power to do so was to remain with those states, and those states did indeed codify morality, as communities of decent Christian men should be expected to do. The various states forbid homosexuality, calling it by its more proper name, to me, most all of the states also forbid fornication, which is race mixing, and many other vices. Yet, ever since a large influx of Jews into America, have they constantly attacked and have now successfully eradicated the Christian fabric of American society in the name of equality, using the nation's own court systems and constitutions as weapons against the nation itself. They have corrupted the nation. Jews brought the first court cases, which attempted to strip the Christian foundations from American society as early as 1899 in Virginia, and have done so relentlessly since. Jews have, at the same time, been at the vanguard of attacks against the proscription of immoral acts which were at one time legislated in each and every state until this very day where morality has now been almost completely deregulated. The parallel attacks on both Christianity and legislated morality are not a coincidence. If a man believes that his rights are endowed by the creator as the founders of this nation recognized, then man understands that those rights are inalienable. If man believes that his morals are passed down from God as the founders of this nation also recognized, that man understands that those morals are immutable. Yet man has allowed the Jew to litigate God out of modern society, so now we have no rights and no morals. Yet contrary to what the Jewish media now has most Americans believe in, liberalism. Is not the law of the land. The Constitution did not enforce morality only because that was a power expressly left to the individual states. Furthermore, the freedoms spoken of by the founders of the American nation were economic, spiritual, and social freedoms that were expected to be expressed within the boundaries of Christian moral standards and not in spite of them. However, the Jewish idea of freedom includes the freedom to be a pervert, the freedom to corrupt society into a state of decadence, which the founders never did envision and which the laws of the several states had already proscribed. When the republic was devised, it was not its purpose for the federal government to encroach upon the sovereignty of the individual states and their natural right to legislate morality in order to protect their good citizens. For over 100 years, American conservatism, almost entirely Christian in nature, attempted to stand against the encroachments of the liberals. That section of the political spectrum, which has always been heavily populated by Jews. However, American conservatism has today embraced liberalism, and few are even aware of it, and today, American conservatism is just as populated by Jews. Today's conservatives are actually no different from liberals, except Perhaps for certain of their beliefs concerning economic matters. The vehicle through which this seems to have been happened, to which this seems to have happened is libertarianism, a sort of hybrid political philosophy, which itself was contrived to, the, to a great extent by Jews. Libertarianism was contrived by Jews named David Boaz. Murray Rothbard and Robert Levy. Libertarians are indeed fiscal conservatives. Big deal. What good is money when you don't have a a, a just and moral nation to spend it in? And they rightly eschew involvement in foreign wars, about which even George Washington so famously warned the nation upon leaving office. However, libertarians are apathetic Concerning race, an attitude which discarded the clause in the Constitution concerning posterity. Libertarians must be apathetic concerning race since those who developed the philosophy have no share in that posterity. Libertarians are also social liberals and therefore moral liberals accepting all sorts of immoral practices merely as alternative lifestyles, personal freedoms, and even defending the supposed right of individuals to engage in those practices, a right which does not exist and which was not recognized by the founders of the republic, who were all representatives of states which ex. Explicitly prohibited immoral acts in their laws. There is a libertarian political party which itself has never gained any actual power ever since the 1980 election when a libertarian U.S. presidential candidate, John Anderson received media attention which far exceeded what was merited by the final vote count. Libertarian ideas have seeped into American conservatism. Like Ron Paul, who was embraced by libertarians but who operates within the Republican Party, Anderson was also a failed Republican primary candidate. Now, Jewish libertarian ideas have totally saturated American conservatives, and Ron Paul seems to be the standard bearer. It may be Rand Paul now. Conservatives seeking votes and therefore relenting to the Big Tent philosophy have compromised themselves and their ideals for the economic benefits of the individual, which they believe would result from smaller government and lower taxes. With a great percentage of liberals, libertarians, republicans, and other conservatives now agreeing on most moral issues, politics has been reduced to little but a fight over money. Ignorance of the fact that the federal government and the Constitution were never intended to regulate those things which belonged to the sovereign states alone. Conservatives are now persuaded that libertarian ideals are those which belong to the nation's founders. Yet nothing could be further from the truth. The developers of libertarianism as a political philosophy, have made it quite clear that it is amoral or morally liberal. In regard to morality, and also in regard to other important issues such as race, libertarianism has an openly accepting philosophy, which allows for and would even enhance the coexistence of good and evil. Each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not God. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not speak to welcome him, for he speaking to welcome him, takes a share in his evil works, from the second soul of John. The word conservatism is from a Latin verb which means to retain, and its political aspiration should naturally be to seek to retain the republic as it was first formed. That would include the rights of the various sovereign states to uphold the moral values of their citizenry, seeking to protect the citizenry from corruption, as those states had fully asserted and had put into practice long before the union was first formed. Libertarianism is actually anti-conservative because it insists that states relinquish all such rights to regulate morality. Libertarianism is the vehicle which has made conservatives into liberals, and now conservatives are only turning a blind eye to all sorts of deviancy. But also, in essence, they are defending the contrived rights of the deviants themselves to be deviant. Libertarianism is, therefore, a deceptive political philosophy which persuades otherwise good people into defending the right of Sodom and Gomorrah to exist, when Sodom and Gomorrah actually have no such right. Yet Christians are commanded to keep themselves from evil, not to sleep with it politically or otherwise. Therefore, Christianity cannot be reconciled with libertarianism. Back to my brother's house. The following evening, I took my nephew to a meeting, which I had in Jacksonville with a couple of Christian identity brethren. We talked for hours about the Bible, our Christian-Israelite heritage, our society, and, of course, its current state of apathy and immorality. One of the lessons I had hoped he would take away was that morality is absolute and immorality must be rejected. Moral relativism is a Jewish concept, and now it is being taught to white children Everywhere. It is also the philosophy which libertarianism espouses. My nephew paid close attention to the conversation, and at the time he agreed. While those who understand are few, the enemies of Christ have not yet won a decisive victory over good, and neither will they do so. This concludes our September 2012 article. Now we will address our three main contentions with the articles from the Libertarian Republic, which we had already presented earlier, sections of which we had already presented earlier. While the Libertarian Republic explain that the children of Israel rejected Yahweh their God in exchange for an earthly king. As it is explained in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they did not give any historical context which explains why the Israelites were led to do so. To see that context, we must go back to the book of Judges, which relates some of the history of the period leading up to the time of Samuel. First, we may read in Judges chapters 17 and 21, that, and, and the, same, the same sentence is repeated in both chapters, that in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right, In his own eyes. So it was inevitable that the Israelites would eventually demand the appointment of an earthly king long before Samuel because they had already rejected Yahweh their God as king. But there is another pattern which is manifest throughout the book of Judges, which happened frequently. During the 400-year period, which the book covers, and we will offer one example of this pattern from Judges chapter 13, where it says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. Well, the children of Israel in the book of Judges were tyrannized were held subject to many of the surrounding tribes for diverse periods of time, the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Moabites, because they did evil in the sight of the Lord. The lesson in the book of Judges is that when the children of Israel forsook the law of God, they were punished by falling subject to tyrannical government. This is what it means to have Yahweh God as king, and this is what it means to have Christ as king, to follow his commandments. The libertarians would replace authority government with personal freedom, with every man doing right in his own eyes. But it is not Christian to do so instead. The only biblical alternative to authoritarian government is government by God and the law of God. So, the idea of the libertarian idea of personal freedom dictated by individual conscience is not a Christian idea at all. Christ had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He was certainly referring to all of the Old Testament commandments governing the behavior and morals of men. While we would admit and can elucidate through Scripture the Christians themselves are forbidden to correct sinners by force, and there are historical and religious reasons for that. The Christian gospel instructs Christians into how to treat sinners within, by lawful means within the scope of the authoritarian empire as Christians of the first century, were also living under an authoritarian empire, which precluded, which prevented them from executing the law of God. So they couldn't, they couldn't correct sinners by force. They would be in trouble with the Romans. Today, we cannot correct sinners by force, because we would be in trouble with these modern Romans, the government in Washington. But nevertheless, Christians are instructed how to treat sinners, and those instructions are completely ignored by the libertarians. The Christian gospel also informs Christians that sinners would be punished by God, and that punishment comes in the form of authoritarian government. So in essence, libertarians are sinners in denial. Just like the children of Israel were in the days of the judges and Samuel. The children of Israel used the excuse that Samuel's sons were wicked judges, but they did not seek to replace them with good judges. Rather, they sought an earthly king. Why? because they thought that an earthly king could defend them and prevent them from becoming subject to tyrants every time that they sinned. That's why they wanted an earthly king. It's written all over the book of Judges. That is the real lesson of Judges and Samuel, that men seeking to escape punishment for their sins would only be punished all the more. Because of the circumstances of 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the children of Israel rejected Yahweh, their God, as king, have not been reversed, the children of Israel remain in a period of punishment under earthly kings. This situation is not rectified until Christ, who shall indeed be king of kings and lord of lords as it says in Revelation chapter 19, when all earthly governments are dissolved once and for all. For this reason, the Apostle Peter had told his Christian readers, to submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So we see in 1 Peter chapter 2 that tyrannical government is sanctioned by God for the punishment of evildoers. Likewise, Paul states in Romans chapter 13, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of god whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of god and they that resist shall receive to those damnation for rulers are not a terror to good works but to the evil will thou then not be afraid of the power do that which is good and thou shalt have praise of the same for he is the minister of god to thee for good but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he, meaning the tyrannical government, bears not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also, also for conscience's sake. Saying these things, Paul also recognizes that tyrannical governments are a punishment from God upon sinners. Therefore, tyrannical government is a punishment from God, and a sinful nation can rot, cannot remain sinful and expect freedom from tyranny. In the New Testament, sin is still defined by the law of God. Paul described, what we would now call homosexuality and lesbianism in Romans chapter 1. And he gave a list of other sins, among which are fornication, covetousness, and murder. Then he said that those who know the judgment of God, that they who commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, not only who who not only do the same, but who have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, accepting the persons of sinners. We become partners in their sin. And we too are worthy of the penalties for that sin. This is the primary reason why libertarianism cannot be Christian. Christians <laughs> I'm sorry. Christians may not have authority from God to execute such sinners themselves, but it is the function of tyrannical government to punish those who accept such sinners, and that is where we stand today. However, Christians did have instructions as to how to treat such sinners, and today they failed to obey them having been deceived by libertarianism and by liberalism. Paul made an example of those instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he said, But now I have written unto you, not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one No, not even to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are outside? Do you not judge those that are within, but them that are outside without? God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that wicked person. God judges them. And as both Peter and Paul tell us elsewhere such as in Romans chapter 13, God uses tyrannical governments to judge not only the wicked, but also those who accept the wicked. Christians themselves may indeed judge the wicked once their own obedience to God's law is fulfilled, as Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, The warning of Christ not to judge sinners is a warning not to judge hypocritically. If you do the things which you judge, Christians certainly must break company with and ostracize sinners, but Christians shouldn't judge hypocritically. Christians have liberty only in Christ. And liberty in Christ means that Christians must keep his commandments and reject all of those who do not keep them, as John had warned in 2 John verses 9-11, which we've already quoted. Christ himself had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And if we do not love him, we do not have God. As Peter also said in that same place we just cited, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Christians are not to use that liberty in Christ for a cloak of maliciousness, which would be the violation of God's laws. We have liberty in Christ if we keep his commandments, we expect our fellows to do so if we do not expect our fellows to do so. If, we, if our fellows do not do so, we put them out of our communities. That's the example of the apostles. For all of these reasons and more, libertarianism cannot be Christian. And that's the end of our presentation tonight. Next week, Yahweh willing, we shall be at home in Panama City, and we shall continue our presentation of Ephesians, and also hopefully next Saturday, take up the promised rebuttal to the King James-only heresy, and yes, it is a Christian heresy. If the King James Version is the inspired word of God, then what are the words of the apostles recorded in the first century? What a day. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.